Hello, and welcome to Thank the Academy, the podcast where we talk about every Academy Award-winning best picture in order. This is the Academy Archives, and this week we're discussing Academy Award-winning film E.T., The Extraterrestrial, and 50 Years of the Screen Actors Guild. We're your hosts, Zach and Kristen, and that's our producer, Kayla. Howdy. Hello. Hello. Welcome to the show. Yes, thank you for joining us. Of course, we're talking about two very fun topics today. Yeah, it's pretty exciting. I feel like we have a nice, fun movie, Mm -hmm. Radicalize the Kids, and then we're going to talk about... (laughs) Radicalizing (laughs) the adults. Yeah. (laughs) Uh, But before we get too far into it, uh, Bosley has a review. Oh, good. Bosley. Bosley is our pupper named for... New York Times film critic, Bosley Crowther. (laughs) Yes. And uh, Bosley also is a film critic. He is in his own way, but uh, as a dog, he likes to critique other dogs. So Bosley, what is his uh, criticism for today? Um, So more than criticism, Bosley is going to tell us about uh, one of the first famous dogs. Oh. Shep. Okay. Shep worked for the Tannhauser Company. Uh, The Tannhauser Company was one of the first uh, Picture Studios Founded in 1909 by Edwin Tannhauser and his wife, Gertrude, and his brother-in-law, Lloyd Lonergan. Um, They were in New York City, and they operated from 1909 until 1920 and produced over a thousand films. Whoa. (laughs) Working dog. Well, the dog didn't do that. The company did. (laughs) Um, But Shep was a collie. Owned by Jack Harvey, who was a film director who worked for Tannhauser Company. Um, He also worked for Vitagraph Studios and a couple other motion picture studios at the time. And he was in a handful of films, like maybe 25 films during his life, and was a very featured pet. Um, The Chicago News did a big story on Mm. him because he was one of like the first sort of dogs with fame because of (laughs) film. Um, So I just thought I'd read this little thing that Bosley found interesting. Okay. Quote, Shep is the name of a dog whose principal claim to fame is that he graces the screen in the capacity of a star, (laughs) frequently appearing in the title roles of startling and melodramatic thrillers. Shep is a Tannhauser collie, a valuable acquisition to that studio, and according to the directors, goes about his work with a determination and precision which would do credit to many of his human friends in the profession. Like any ordinary star or stock performer, Shep must rehearse his parts until he attains a perfect understanding of his role. When a scene is ready to be enacted for the camera, the canine takes his place among the players, watches them closely as they go through their respective parts, and when his cue comes, enters the scene without any delay, performing his duties intelligently, rarely spoiling the picture, thereby causing a takeover. Wow, such high praise. Yeah. Uh, So a few of his more uh, popular short films were A Dog's Good Deed, A Dog's Love, (laughs) Shep's Race with Death, The Barrier of Flames, and Shep the Sentinel. Wow, they do sound very dramatic. Mm Mm-hmm. Uh, there are so many like really, really cute photos of him with like child stars that Aww. he was in films with, specifically from A Dog's Love. Um, but yeah, he had a fun life. He was one of the first dog stars. These were silent films? Yes. Just- okay, wow. Mm-hmm. That's awesome. And, you know, lived a fun life and was a dog star. Wow, Shep. The so original. shout out to Shep, one of the first canine Stars of the screen. Oh, Bosley, thanks for highlighting him. We never would have known. Well, and with that, um, why don't you talk to us about one of the great movies of this year, E.T.? Yes. So, of course, we just talked about the 55th Academy Awards, and the year that these films are from is 1982, being awarded at the 55th Academy Awards, and one of those is E.T., the extraterrestrial. Mm -hmm. Um, we've been talking about Spielberg here and there. He's mm-hmm. in and out of the award. I mean, all his films are getting nominated like crazy in the 80s yeah, and mid to late 70s. And this is another one of those same films. So a recap first. A group of aliens visit Earth and one gets left behind after he gets distracted by the lights of Los Angeles. He ventures down into the San Fernando Valley where he meets and is taken in by Elliot Taylor. Elliot introduces the alien to his little sister, Gertie, and older brother, Michael. 
The alien begins calling himself E.T., and he and Elliot begin to show signs of being psychically and emotionally linked. The longer E.T. is away from his home planet, the more he degrades physically and mentally, and Elliot begins to feel the effects as well. E.T. begins building a device so that he can phone home to alert his comrades to pick him up from Earth. E.T. and Elliot grow sicker, and scientists that have been tracking E.T. finally catch up with him, setting up a base in the Taylor home. They begin running experiments on E.T. until they realize that he and Elliot are linked and that his sickness is killing Elliot as well. As E.T. begins to die, the link between he and Elliot is finally broken, and Elliot quickly recovers. As the scientists prepare to take E.T. away, Elliot realizes he is still alive and with the help of Gertie, Michael, and his friends, steal E.T. away from the scientists and take him into the forest where they meet E.T.'s friends, who have come to rescue him. E.T. reassures an emotional Elliot that he'll be right here in Elliot's memory before leaving in his spaceship. Nice. Um, so this film had a budget of $10.5 million, and it ended up grossing $359 million <laughs> in its first theatrical domestic release. Oh my gosh. It grossed $619 million worldwide in its first release. Wow. And has since grossed $793 million in its lifetime. Um, it's been re-released a handful of times for mm-hmm. like the 20th anniversary and the 40th anniversary. Oh my gosh. <laughs> um, in IMAX at different points, you know. That, all that fun stuff. So it broke the record then, of course, for the number one best-selling film up to that time, beating mm. Star Wars. Mm. And we'll hold the record for the next couple of years until Jurassic Park comes along. Mm. Um, so the last time we talked about Steven Spielberg was, <laughs> like, extensively, was in our episode about Jaws. Yes. Where did we leave off? He's had a string of successes and nominations since Jaws, including Close Encounters of the Third Kind and mm-hmm. Raiders of the Lost Ark being the biggest ones. So the origins of this story start with Spielberg's childhood, uh, when he had created an imaginary alien friend for himself to combat his loneliness during his parents' separation and divorce. (laughs) Um, These memories ended up resurfacing when he was on set in Tunisia for Raiders of the Lost Ark, um, a time that he has recalled since as one of the other, like, very lonely times in his life. Huh. He was like... I'm so lonely. Where's my alien friend? Oh my gosh, I have an alien friend. Yeah. (laughs) At the time, he wanted to get back to sci-fi and was considering a sequel to Close Encounters and was also working on the treatment for another story with John Sayles called Night Skies, in which a group of aliens terrorizes a family on Earth. Ah. Also during this time, he hires Kathleen Kennedy to start working with him. Mm. Uh, So now she is onto the scene. (laughs) Uh, So I'll talk a little bit about her since she's one of the most prolific producers of all time. She grew up in California and attended San Diego State, majoring in telecommunications and film. Before she graduated, she started working in the news station KCST um, and held a variety of roles there until finally producing the talk show You're On for four years before moving to L.A. Uh, There she became the assistant to writer John Milius, who had just finished working with Francis Ford Coppola on Apocalypse Now. Oh, okay. Um, And who was writing uh, the film that Spielberg would direct called 1941. Um, On this time, Spielberg recalled in 2015, quote, she was horrible at taking notes, but (laughs) what she did know how to do was interrupt somebody in mid-sentence. We'd be pitching ideas back and forth, and Kathy, who was supposed to be writing these ideas down, suddenly put her pencil down and would say something like, and what if he didn't get the girl, but instead got the dog? (laughs) Okay. (laughs) Most people don't like it when you do that. (laughs) Well, he enjoyed this. Okay. (laughs) Um, After the film 1941, Spielberg asked her to be his assistant, after which she continued to take on larger and larger roles with him during their creative processes. Um, She was credited as an associate to Spielberg on Raiders of the Lost Ark, then associate producer on Poltergeist, which Spielberg produced. Mm. um, And then her first producer credit finally comes on E.T. Okay. Another important figure in the making of E.T. is screenwriter Melissa Matheson. Um, She had run in the same circles with Spielberg up to this point. Uh, She was also an assistant to Francis Ford Coppola on The Godfather Part II. Um, He, actually, Coppola, pushed her to write The Black Stallion, which he produced with partner Fred Roos, which was released in 1979 to great critical acclaim. And you've seen this one, right? Yes. Yeah. The film caught the attention of Spielberg, and he was eager to work with her. 
Um, she also happened to be dating Harrison Ford at the time <laughs> that they were making Raiders of the Lost Ark. So she was frequently around the set and she and Spielberg began talking about an alien film and the other film, Night Skies. Mm. Um, Spielberg was developing Night Skies with Columbia, but then they began to question the financial possibility of the film and then they decided to put that film in turnaround. Mm. And then, of course, she won the Academy Award for uh, The Black Stallion. Yes. So good for her. Mm-hmm. Um, once the film went into turnaround, he began redeveloping it with Matheson, uh, in which one friendly alien of the group started a friendship with a young boy. Because remember, it was about a malevolent group of aliens. I was going to say, I thought they were terrorizing. Yeah. Uh, since he began treating the humans favorably, he being the alien, uh, he was left on Earth, and thus the real beginnings of E.T. began to be fleshed out. Mm. Um, Matheson then wrote the first draft of what was currently titled E.T. and Me, giving it to Spielberg only eight weeks later. Spielberg thought it was a perfect script, though it ended up going through two more drafts before shooting, um, in which they created the chase scene at the end, they removed the character of Elliot's best friend, and then created the sequence when E.T. gets drunk. (laughs) (laughs) Columbia was still very uninterested for some reason, so Spielberg decided to take it to Universal, who he convinced to purchase all of the project from Columbia, uh, which in the deal, Columbia decided to keep 5% to collect on the net profit just in case it ended up making any money. Oh, and look at them. Lucky them. (laughs) (laughs) One of the first hires once the movie was greenlit at Universal was Carlos Rambaldi, who was going to make all of the puppets and animatronics that would be used as E.T., Kathleen Kennedy ended up visiting the Jules Stein Eye Institute to look at eyes and had them make the glass eyes that would be put into the puppets. Mm. Um, She was very insistent that, and rightly so, that the eyes needed to be very specific because, I don't know, they're like the main thing that's drawing you into being sympathetic toward E.T. Yeah, it needs to have like a a slightly human quality, Mm -hmm. a slightly baby quality, something that will like make you feel like, oh, I want to protect this thing. Well, and (laughs) E.T. is, it's funny because Spielberg talks about E.T., the puppet and the character as like being something only a mother could love because he just thought (laughs) it was like so like ugly, which is what he wanted. Yeah. But the the eyes like do make him look sympathetic yeah Yeah. cute and Mm -hmm. like he has more to him than just being a weird alien also it needs to have a face that is good on camera that like can Mm -hmm. be expressive in its own way and they have to look natural like not like (laughs) Like uncanny like yeah yeah yeah. (laughs) no uncanny valley aliens Uh, four heads ended up being made for the puppet, as well as a number of animatronic bodies and costumes that were actually worn by two little people, Tamara DeTrue and Paul Billon, as well as a child actor, Matthew Demerit, who was born without legs. Hmm. Um, when he was using the costume in his normal life, he walked on his hands. Mm-hmm. And so when he was using the costume, he put his hands into the feet holes. Huh. Um, and then he played all of the moments where... E.T. walked awkwardly or needed to fall over. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, that's so cute. (laughs) Caprice Roth, a professional mime, was then hired to do E.T.'s hands. Oh, interesting. So that they were all like very expressive expressive hand movements. Huh. Um, All in all, E.T., the puppet, ended up costing $1.5 million and took three months to create. It's so cool that there was so much collaboration that went into him, though. Yeah. Yeah, depending on what they needed him to do, the different actors inside the costumes would assume the different roles of, like, the style. (laughs) And then the different heads could do different things. So, like, one of them was for talking. One of them Mm -hmm. was for more, like, malicious face movement. Mm. One was for more, like, cute face movement. And, like, you know, just pretty interesting. The costume had slits in the chest area for them to see through. And Ah. then the head was affixed to like a pole gotcha. like through his neck. Like puppeteering yeah. it kind of. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so pretty interesting. Um, ben Burt, of course, uh, did all of the sound design. Amazing. Mm. Ben Burt, who has worked on Star Wars and Raiders of the Lost Ark. He's a part of this mix of fellow directors of Spielberg's. <laughs> um, he helped uh, with the vocal work of Pat Walsh to create all of the voice of E.T. Mm. 
Um, he mixed her voice with other sound effects to create the many words and noises. Um, other things that he has said contributed to E.T.'s voice and sounds that he made included recordings of Spielberg, recordings of actress Deborah Winger, his own wife who was sick with a cold at the time, <laughs> a burp from his old professor at USC, <laughs> raccoons, otters, and horses. How did he get a burp from his professor? I don't know. <laughs> imagine being immortalized for that yeah um originally the script was written with m&ms as the candy of choice in this the film. is the one thing my parents always talk about yes but mars decided against allowing their candy to be featured because they thought that it was going to show them in a negative light for some reason their mistake uh so spielberg asked hershey if they could use reese's pieces <laughs> and of course they used them uh, i will mention that again later uh, Spielberg went through a lot of auditions to cast the kids, of course, mm. uh, but he had just used kids in Close Encounters of the Third Kind, right. so he felt like he had a sense of how to direct kids. Mm. Uh, and this would be sort of a theme throughout his career. He really enjoys working with kids. Yeah, yeah. And is able to get pretty good performances out of most kids, too. Mm -hmm. Henry Thomas was suggested to him by director Jack Fisk, who had just worked with Thomas on his film Raggedy Man. Uh, Thomas did not do a very good audition, having come to the audition in an Indiana Jones costume. Oh, <laughs> oh, buddy. He's such a fan. I love that. Uh, but That's he ended so up being able to improvise very well with Spielberg. Okay. Yeah. Um, of course, Aww. everyone fell in love with Drew Barrymore when she auditioned. <laughs> um, she was actually Spielberg's goddaughter. Yeah. I didn't know that. Um, which is part of why she was able to get the role. But also, her audition was amazing. If yeah. you you can look up her audition tape, it's like so cute. <laughs> um, specifically, Spielberg and the casting directors wanted to cast her uh, because she told a story in earnest that she was the leader of a punk rock band. Oh, that's <laughs> so cute. She's also Hollywood royalty. I yeah. mean, she has the lineage. Mm -hmm. The genes are there. Like she is born of show people. Yes. So, of course, she's going to be fine. She has it in her blood. Yeah. He ended up casting doctors from the USC Medical Center to play all the doctors and scientists at the end of the film to make their performances more realistic, of course. <laughs> and then the main thing that he had to do or decided to do to make the movie was to shoot in chronological order. Hmm. Um, so almost the entire film was shot chronologically for the sake of the kids. It allowed huh. them to, like, build up on their performance and... Aww. They he treated E.T. like totally real on set. Mm. And so the kids also most of the time like didn't really know that E.T. wasn't real. <laughs> um, it's something that Drew Barrymore talks a lot about, too. Yeah. Like in her memory, uh -huh. she did the movie with E.T. Mm, that's like, so interesting. She didn't do the movie with the actors who played E.T. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, um, that's pretty remarkable for working with children because like it is a lot of imaginary play which can be baffling to child actors mm -hmm. and so having like a good mix of like reality but also imagination happening is just so good and smart well and it really then heightens their performance yeah. when et is dying oh. it's like i mean part of this sounds a little bit emotionally uh, yeah. manipulative yeah but again it's kind of like it's very weird to talk about child actors yes I, I, we've mentioned this all the time yes. but like Anyways, that's what he did and got the performances that they gave. Yeah. But they all say what a fun time. Like, all mm -hmm. of their memories of working on this film are all positive. Mm. Most of them have lots and lots of interviews where they're just like, uh, just was amazing. Yeah. Loved working with Steven. Loved working <laughs> with E.T. <laughs> um, so then, of course, the film was a runaway hit. Mm -hmm. I mean, it's one of the most successful films of all time. Uh, it is still the fourth highest grossing film of all time, adjusted for inflation, uh, behind The Sound of Music ah. and ahead of the Titanic. Mm. Um, at one point, while the movie was like raking in cash, uh, Steven Spielberg was making $500,000 every day oh my on gosh. this movie. Wow. Um, Hershey's profits rose 65% <laughs> after the film was released due to people wanting Reese's Pieces. Um, and then Columbia, 
made more from their 5% of E.T.'s profits than on any other film they released in 1982. (laughs) So lucky for them, they held on to that. (laughs) Um, Another really interesting thing is throughout history, this film has sold really well as well. Mm. Um, So in 1988, it was released on VHS. Ah, yeah. And it made $250 million in Mm. VHS sales, Mm. which is more than most other movies even made in general in the 80s. Wow. One thing that helped this was at the time in the late 80s, VHS, most VHS tapes cost about 80 bucks to buy. Oh my gosh, 80 bucks? Yeah. Wow. So the average uh, cost of a VHS was $80. Um, They released E.T. at a reduced cost of only $25 per tape. Oh, wow. And so it really, really boosted the sales. Yeah, right. There's also something that's just so smart about movies like this that are Mm -hmm. technically family movies, but they're very serious and very real. So it's like you're getting the multi-generational appeal. Yeah. Well, and then the other thing that this film did that a lot of other films was sort of create a little franchise around it. Mm. So there were so many toys sold, plushies of E.T. There were like a whole line of bikes sold because of the bikes Uh, in the film with like E.T. paraphernalia on it with the basket that he uses. And so in addition to all of that, uh, Spielberg had made a bunch of money on that. And they estimate that there were, with all of the like products sold, Mm. there was another billion dollars made just on products. Man, that's crazy. So I didn't see E.T. till I was an adult because <laughs> when I was a kid, we went to a family friend's house and they had like a stuffed E.T. Mm. And I was so scared of it. I thought it was so gross. And I was like, ah, I hit the monster, <laughs> which is only reinforced to me that if I as a child was encountered with E.T., I probably would have not run away. It. Yeah. <laughs> you may have seen it through Drew Barrymore's eyes. Who knows? But probably not. I'm also from Philadelphia and they beat up any travelers that come through. Hmm. Okay. Like the little <laughs> robot that came through. <laughs> so. Um, so another thing that's interesting about the VHS part of this is that it came out the same month, uh, released the same month that Cinderella was first released mm. on VHS. Mm-hmm. And the amount of pre-orders for E.T. doubled the number of pre-orders for Cinderella. That is impressive. Yeah. Especially since it, like Cinderella had never been released yeah. before. Yeah. It was the first time that people could actually own a copy of Cinderella. Wow. That's crazy. Yeah. Um, so it ended up being nominated for nine Academy Awards. I'll just go through those quickly. Um, it was nominated for Best Picture for Steven Spielberg and Kathleen Kennedy. Her first nomination for Best Picture. Uh, It was nominated for Best Director for Steven Spielberg, Best Original Screenplay for Melissa Matheson, Best Original Score for John Williams. Uh Uh-huh. One of his best scores. Yeah. yeah. Really amazing. Mm -hmm. Which, of course, he won. Yeah. Deservedly. Best Cinematography for Alan Davieu. Best Film Editing for Carol Littleton. Best Sound Effects Editing for Charles Campbell and Ben Burt, which they won. Best Sound for Robert Knudsen, Robert Glass, Don DiGirialmo, and Jean Cantamessa, which they won. And Best Visual Effects for Carlo Rambaldi, Dennis Murin, and Kenneth F. Smith, which they won. Nice. The, there were at least three women nominated from this movie. Mm-hmm. That's pretty amazing. Yeah. And that's one thing that I feel like a lot of these... A lot of people don't really know that Lucas and Spielberg and Coppola and all of them, they directed a lot of films and they produced a lot of films, but they had a lot of female crew people who worked for them. Yeah, that's that's nice to hear. Yeah. <laughs> well, and like who this, were all at the top of their game. Yeah, right. And they're they're in positions of power and creative control over their departments as well, which mm-hmm. is always nice to hear. Yes, so that is the awards that they were nominated for and won. All in all, it was a fun night for them at the award ceremony. A lot of people thought that they were going to win Best Picture. Yeah, we did talk about this in our most recent episode um, in which Gandhi won Best Picture. Um, Yeah, Richard Attenborough was very, very surprised. Yeah, yeah. And I mean, it... 
it was kind of neck and neck mm-hmm. um, leading up to the actual ceremony. People were not totally sure how like things would fall out because they were also nominated for a lot of the same things. Well, and they were all like they were two like very different films. Like yes. one is like a technical marvel yes. with a really great story, mm-hmm. a lot of kids involved. The other is like a very historical epic about yeah. a very important figure. Mm-hmm. I mean, there are two types of movies that the Academy always is going to nominate. And in 82 and 83, it's the height of both of these things. Mm-hmm. There's a lot of respect for these like more fun technical marvels mm-hmm. um, that kind of disappears you know, as we go on and then like comes back around again, like superheroes. Yeah. Yeah. And also that like didn't exist in the past because this is all still pretty new. And because it's so new with Spielberg movies and Lucas movies and all these things, like the technology is astounding because it hasn't ever been done. So of course it's being celebrated. Right. Which is good that those are the awards that they won. Yeah. And Spielberg's films have won a lot of very technical awards Mm -hmm. because of that. Yeah. He's always pushing the boundaries of those things. Yeah. I mean, and that's like what he's known for. Yeah. <laughs> of course, we would have to recommend this. If you have not seen this film, you definitely should watch this. Yes. This is a classic and not just like a film classic. It's yeah. a personal classic. You gotta. Well, and it has influenced <laughs> so many things, especially in like current day with like your Stranger Things and stuff 100%. like that. It's like, in a way, almost a ripoff of, of, of <laughs> E.T. But. A lot of heart, a lot of fun, yeah. a lot of good sci-fi stuff. Definitely. Luckily, I got to rewatch this for this in a theater. Yeah, share about really your experience fun. of that. Yeah, it was really cool. It was um, at the new Vidiots Theater in Eagle Rock in LA. Uh, shout out to them. Glad they're back. And it was on the uh, like anniversary day that it mm-hmm. was released, which is June 11th. Mm-hmm. Fun. <gasps> Wow. So Our not- anniversary, <laughs> E.T.'s anniversary, and the day that John, uh, Wayne, John died. Wayne died. What a day. What a day. <laughs> <laughs> um, so, yeah, it was really cool. It was so, like, interesting and fun and emotional because there were a lot of kids who were seeing it for the first time, and they were getting to see it in theaters, which yeah. is really, really cool. That's awesome. Um, yeah, and it was great. It obviously is better to see in a theater like Mm -hmm. most movies um with a really nice sound system Mm -hmm. but yeah it's just so fun it i i hadn't rewatched it in a long time and it's just such a good movie it's so funny Hmm. um i was really surprised by how funny it was et as like a character is just so hysterical (laughs) um i'm sure all three of the actors and like the woman who's the professional mime had a really fun time getting Mm. to play out that character yeah because he just got to do so many like crazy fun things and lots of uh, like slapstick style comedy Mm. um and then interacting with the kids Mm -hmm. who are all great it's also fun when you get to interact with kids in a setting like that because their kids are unpredictable Mm -hmm. like you don't know what's going to make them laugh or make them respond or whatever so like there's a lot of creativity that can come from that. Yeah. Well, and both Henry Thomas and Drew Barrymore were just so, so good. I mean, Henry Thomas is a very emotionally available actor. Like, that's something that he's known for even up like to today, presently, mm-hmm. as an adult actor. And he was just, like, so always in it. Yeah. Like, and you could always just see on his face he was just so invested in whatever was <laughs> happening. And same with Drew Barrymore. Yeah. So... <laughs> Definitely watch that or rewatch that if you haven't seen it recently. <laughs> um, and with that, uh, we turn to our second topic of this episode, talking about the Screen Actors Guild. Yeah. So it's all so strange how it happened. So, oh. <laughs> so we're last. Yes, let us in. Yeah. So let, let me give you a little bit of uh, context about why I'm talking about this. I had not planned this to be in coordination with the strike that is happening in current day Mm -hmm. but as of this week SAG has gone on strike SAG after that is and so I'm very pleased to be able to talk about this but I originally had written it down on my outline of what I was going to talk about this year because in 1983 which is when our most recent ceremony took place is the 50 year anniversary of the Screen Actors Guild Mm -hmm. and so I you know I talk on this podcast a lot about actors and their engagement with SAG and even I've talked a lot about the union throughout the years we talked a lot about this during um the like 40s and 50s during the house on american activities committee stuff during the blacklist like you know we've talked pretty extensively about this even throughout like the studio model but 
I wanted to give like a proper overview mm-hmm. um, and just talk about what SAG is, why it matters, and what it has become throughout the years. Because in 1983, it had existed for 50 years, which is great. Well, and it's really interesting when you mentioned that you were going to talk about this too, because like just a two, two or three days ago, as of our recording of this, we just passed the 90th anniversary <laughs> yeah. of SAG too, which is crazy. Yeah, yeah, it's it's wild how. Everything aligns. Yeah, it's meant to be. So uh, I'm going to talk about this today. And I'm not going to talk about absolutely everything because I know that, especially like for our listeners' sake, you're here to learn about movies mostly and Mm -hmm. film history. But these are the protections and the union is the protector that keeps actors safe. And I think that that's an essential part of the industry. So uh, just to give a quick overview, this SAG stands for the Screen Actors Guild. I'm going to refer to it as SAG throughout most of this section just because that's easier and that's what people tend to go by mm-hmm. for it. Um, uh, SAG did merge with the American Federation of Television and Radio Artists in 2012 to create SAG-AFTRA, which is what it's now known as today. Um, but the first 50 years, it was just SAG. So that's all I'm going to be talking about today. Uh, right. I'm not really going to talk about AFTRA. Um, from their website, from their mission statement, SAG-AFTRA, this is what they say about it. SAG-AFTRA is committed to organizing all work done under our jurisdictions, negotiating the best wages, working conditions, and health and pension benefits, preserving and expanding members' work opportunities, vigorously enforcing our contracts, and protecting our members against unauthorized use of their work. Mm-hmm. That's the like shortest version I could find of what SAG is meant to do. Yeah. And SAG is a collective, um, so it's made up of members, uh, volunteers, uh, some paid people as well to uh, create like a collective bargaining power um, to create people and lawyers and have, uh, you know, resources so that people can uh, have fair contracts and wages negotiated and uh, stands on behalf of the individual. Mm -hmm. So that's kind of what What's going on? But this didn't always exist. So let's Uh take it back to the beginning. Um, So the creation of SAG was in 1933. It was the first successful attempt to establish a motion picture actors union that was independent of the studios and the producers. So what I mean by that is that from 1920 to 1929, um, there wasn't a proper union for screen actors. Equity Mm. had already existed, especially on the East Coast. So Mm. Actors Equity Association or AEA, um, they were mostly based in New York. They were the union that actors for the stage used. Um, But as the development of Hollywood happened, it was kind of like, well, what do these actors need? And Equity wanted to be involved, um, Mm. but actors were kind of resistant to it because it, it seemed like they just had really different needs than stage actors did. Yeah, and there course. was a little bit of miscommunication. Um, and uh, additionally, actors that were working for the studios were so invested in the studios and there was such a monopoly mm-hmm. happening that it was just like not feasible. And also at the time when we're talking about, the studio model was in place. So the needs are so much different because you're being hired by one company and you're making a bunch of films for that company. Mm -hmm. And you're sort of like a full-time employee Mm -hmm. of that company and just doing whatever they tell you to do. Yeah. Whereas when you're working on a play, it's very different. You get hired to do one play and that's your job. Mm -hmm. And then when that play is over, you're done. Yeah. And you get hired by somebody else. And the logistical needs are just totally different. For a play, you have rehearsals during the daytime until you start performances, and then you do performances. Mm -hmm. And for screen actors, the rehearsal process is different. The working days are different. You're traveling to locations. You're whatever. Like, all kinds of stuff was Mm -hmm. just, like, totally hard to have an outsider come into. Um, So... In 1927, there was a massive cut in non-union salaries uh, for actors, Mm. um, which generated a lot of interest in equity. But unfortunately, they were undercut by the Academy of Motion Picture Arts and Sciences, Mm -hmm. which was a group created by producers to represent the employees as a part of the studio system. Mm -hmm. Um, And of course, this sounds familiar because the Academy of Motion Picture Arts and Sciences is... What does the Oscars? Yes. So we talk about them extensively. So this is kind of what the original union, and I say union loosely, started as. Um, because one of the main issues with actors being represented by the AMPAS was that um, they were on the side of the studio. Right. They are essentially focused on the industry, and they're not really able to arbitrate on behalf of the actors as well. So when there was like things would come up where there was like arbitration needed between a producer and an actor on contract disputes or whatever, 
uh, they would often side on the side of the production. Um, there was also a membership policy that was invitation only. Mm-hmm. And so it was very hard for actors to even get any kind of representation by them anyways. Only some of the top stars were getting it. Um, people that had billable faces that like kind of did need some sort of arbitration. And there was a benefit to being like a part of that. Right. Um, so due to the Great Depression, in 1931, um, movie studios brought in what were called efficiency experts to slash actors' salaries by as much as 50% to save Ooh. on the salary costs during this time. That's crazy. Um, so the Academy uh, stepped in to help protest this, yeah. um, which was great, I think, for everybody. Because um, pro- there were a lot of members that were actors. Yes. And... Yeah, because if you remember us talking about this, there are branches and all that kind of stuff. So actors were a big part of this, Mm -hmm. especially the founding of it. Um, So producers decided that they would negotiate with the Academy rather than with equity because equity was representing some actors, but Mm. producers found it was more beneficial. So this is kind of how they were established as like the real bargaining power. Right. So from 1927 to 1933, the Academy was the chief bargaining agent for screen actors. Um, And the Screen Actors Guild, or SAG, was founded as a result of actor disaffection with the Academy. Of course. Um, So the breaking point came in March of 1933, when the Academy did not protest some drastic cuts that were happening in the salaries of studio and freelance actors. Uh. Also, the Academy approved the National Recovery Administration's Code for the Film Industry. Um, which was written by producers. It also included salary control and agency licensing provisions, which actors resented. They did not like a lot of the things that were coming from it. Um, And it was stuff that was benefiting producers and studios and not the individual actors. Mm -hmm. Um, So that is kind of where everything gets shaky. So SAG technically originates when six actors met secretly in the home of Kenneth Thompson and decided to form a self-governing union that was fully independent of Hollywood producers. So the six actors that were involved in this were Burton Churchill, Grant Mitchell, Ralph Morgan, uh, and those three were all members of Actors' Equity Council. Um, They were also like involved in equity when they had their strike in 1919, so they were all very aware of like actors union stuff already Mm -hmm. additionally charles miller um who was the actors equity west coach representative and of course kenneth thompson who was actually a member of the academy of motion picture arts and sciences Mm. so he was the main like defector um and then also his wife actress alden gay Mm. so they met at the thompson's rented house in the hollywood hills uh in mid-march to discuss what it would look like to form a self-governing organization of film actors Um, And they also were really, really adamant that membership needed to be open to everyone, um, that it needed to be something that would represent all actors across the board. And it would not be invitation only the way that the other Mm -hmm. one was. Um, That way you didn't have to be at the top earner in order to have protection. Anyone who was involved in the film would be receiving this protection. Yeah. Who is a person on camera. Yes. If you are an actor... (laughs) You can be protected. (laughs) Um, So SAG officially incorporated in Sacramento, California on June 30th, 1933. And they won their first victory when President Eddie Cantor persuaded uh, F.D. Roosevelt to suspend salary control and agency licensing provisions, which Mm. is what they had originally had issues with before. Um, And this triumph, this like ability to kind of change the tide of things on like a very large level um, gave them clout. And got, like, very rapid interest in membership with SAG. Mm -hmm. Um, So on July 10th, um, group application for guild membership was signed by 17 SAG founders, um, being Arthur Vinton, James Gleason, Lucia Webster Gleason, Clay Clement, Reginald Mason, Richard Tucker, Leon Wakeholf, Charles Starrett, Ralph Morgan, Alan Morbrake, Claude King, Morgan Wallace, C. Aubrey Smith, Kenneth Thompson, Bradley Page, William Robertson, and Ivan Simpson. Um, and they did all this on July 12th. So that's like kind of the first time they have like more people joining SAG. And then that's the day that it officially is incorporated. Uh, it's incorporated on the 30th of June. Okay. But the first like members are signed in on uh, the 12th. 12th. Yeah. And that's what I was referencing as the anniversary day. Yes. Yeah. Well, and the reason I think you probably think that also is that SAG incorporated in downtown Los Angeles right. on July 12th as yes. well during this. Um, so they have their first building uh, and they choose their first official officers. Ralph Morgan as president, Alan Mowbray as vice president, Lucille Gleason as treasurer, and Kenneth Thompson as secretary. 
Um, one other thing about Ralph Morgan, uh, a lot of people may know his brother, Frank Morgan, who mm-hmm. played um, the wizard in The Wizard of Oz. Yes. Uh, one of the main reasons they were able to convince stars to join was because of him and mm-hmm. because of Frank Morgan's like name. Yes. They were able to say, this is a real thing. Like real people are doing this. Yeah, we're going to keep all working in the movies. Who are like really good and yeah. desirable. <laughs> so at this time, stars begin to leave AMPAS um, to join SAG. Mostly protests against the provisions in FDR's National Recovery Administration's proposed motion picture code of fair compensation result in a mass exodus Hmm. um, uh, starting in like early October. And during this time, major stars like Robert Montgomery, Friedrich March, James Cagney, Anne Harding, Eddie Cantor and Groucho Marx all joined SAG. Hmm. Uh, The first public SAG meeting was held on October 8th at the El Capitan Theater in Hollywood. uh, And it resulted in hundreds of new members. Wow. Nice. Um, so during this time, one of the main questions that come up is the SAG admission of extras, mm-hmm. ac- like background actors. Um, so people were not totally sure what to do about this because the stars were worried that if SAG like allowed all these extras to enroll, um, they would outnumber working actors in the sense of like speaking actors. Mm-hmm. Um, and so it became this weird thing where nobody really knew what to do about like background actors deserve to be protected they should have reasonable hours they should have guaranteed pay like all these kinds of things but also like when it comes to the union itself they shouldn't be able to outnumber speaking actors and working actors and like the actors who really need a lot of like attention and production so this kind of like was a a point of contention for a very long time um so they agree at this time to admit extras as members but not as full voting members Mm -hmm. um to like not give them too much control over guild matters but to still give them protection under the union and also they were worried that stars would not continue to come to sag if they felt like they were not (laughs) given special treatment or priority yeah if there were only like a couple people who were stars and all the rest were not then yes um Because of this, some extras or people who worked like full time as background performers were unhappy with both producers, with SAG, with all these things. So they defected in 1944 to create the Screen Players Union, which was like a new Mm. background actors union. Um, And it ended up being SAG backed. Uh, They were kind of like, oh, great. Do you think? (laughs) Yeah, right. Um, And like supported them. Um, But they were not able to retrieve recognition from the Associated Actors and Artists of America or the four A's, which is like the Mm -hmm. greater collective for actor unions. And it also was not able to get recognition from the American Federation of Labor. So it didn't end up lasting that long. But that's kind of like the solution that happened. Okay, so also to kind of around the same time, so SAG incorporates in 1933, Actors' Equity still had official jurisdiction over motion picture actors because of their like stage credit or whatever. Mm. Um, So on November 13th of 1934, Equity relinquished its jurisdiction on the condition that uh, you could be transferred to SAG Mm. so that they could become sister unions so that you would be able to be affiliated with both if you worked in one or the other, Mm -hmm. Uh, which is why uh, if you are an actor and you work for SAG, after like a year of membership, you're allowed to join equity as well and vice versa. Um, if you pay your dues and do all that kind of stuff. Yeah. <laughs> um, in 1935, SAG affiliated with the four A's being the Associated Actors and Artists of America and also with the American Federation of Labor. And by mid-1935, SAG had over 5,000 members. Wow. In 1935, they also held their very first Screen Actors Guild Awards. Mm-hmm. Um, this was done through monthly balloting on the quote outstanding work of their fellows uh, in like a the magazine, the Screen Actors Guild magazine. Mm-hmm. So they just did some ballots and put it in the magazine on who they thought was the best. Yeah, a lot less uh, formal than what we know today. Yeah, they didn't do that formal part until way later. Yes, that doesn't start till much later. But it was kind of like a who do you think was the best of the year? Write in and let us know. Uh, so in 1936. SAG boycotts the Oscars. Why do you think? Mm-hmm. Because it's the Academy of Motion Picture Arts and Sciences. Um, so the Academy of Motion Picture Sciences, because they have so much alliance with producers at this time, um, they denounced the guild for, quote, selling the actor down the river. Um, and they kind of act as though they're not representing themselves as like a proper bargaining unit for talent, that it's like because they're all actors that are creating this self-governing union they don't know what they're doing right um and so they're trying to convince people to not 
believe it or or work with it um so sag boycotts the oscars which we did talk about during this time but Mm -hmm. of course this is so long ago now (laughs) many many episodes ago um and during this time motion picture producers just start refusing to recognize sag as an official bargaining unit until 1937 when 98% of SAG's 5,000 members voted to strike for recognition, which forced producers to acknowledge SAG and accept the guild. Mm -hmm. Uh, So one of the main reasons that this strike is successful, and of course, like, yes, strike, woohoo, get it done. But also there was a little bit of shady stuff going on behind the scenes. So around May 9th, William Biop, who, um, was uh, the International Alliance of Theatrical Stage Employees, or IATSE, mm-hmm. uh, a business agent and also a, quote, Hollywood representative, uh, had some some more or less hidden ties to gangster Fred Needy's Chicago mob, uh, who may or may not have used some of those influences to encourage some of the head producers like Louis B. Mayer or Joseph Schenck to accept the Guild's demands. Um, so SAG, the SAG negotiating committee met with them at Louis Mayer's beach house. Um, and then they were able to resolve the issue so mm-hmm. that they were officially being recognized. Um, they announced the news to the members that evening. And then in 1937, the same year, 13 producers signed the first guild contract, which guaranteed minimum wages, 12 hour breaks between calls and the arbitration of future disputes. Mm-hmm. So they are officially being recognized not only by the actors, but by the producers, everything is starting to become like very legitimized. Mm-hmm. So that's kind of like, in my opinion, that's where like things really happened. I know that like the founding is considered farther back, but this is like where change starts to really, really happen and they become their own individual union. Mm-hmm. Additionally, just I have to mention this too, in 1938, uh, there's legal action taken by Jackie Coogan and the Coogan Law takes effect on September 19th, um, which is like a big part of SAG as well, uh, protecting child actors. And we've talked extensively about this in our child actors episode, so I'm not going to go into that, but this is around the same time as well. So moving into the 40s, um, we've talked about this era quite a lot, and so I'm not going to go too crazy about SAG's involvement in some of this stuff, mm-hmm. but Unfortunately, unions were under high suspect to the House Committee on Un-American Activities, um, which were investigating communist influence in Hollywood labor unions at the time. And so, of course, SAG is like the main one that they're Mm -hmm. investigating. Um, So in 1947, uh, there's a list of, you know, suspected members working in the Hollywood industry that are summoned before the, the House. And, you know, we get the Hollywood 10 who were charged and as being you know, refusing to cooperate, charged with contempt of Congress, sentenced to prison, all this kind of stuff. During this time, several liberal members of SAG, led by Humphrey Bogart, Lauren Bacall, Danny Kay, and Gene Kelly, they formed the Committee for the First Amendment, or the CFA. They flew to Washington in late October to show support for the Hollywood 10. And of course, we've talked about this too during this time. Ronald Reagan is the president of SAG. He caves to pressure from all of this he becomes a friendly witness you know all this stuff i don't know it's just it's exhausting we've already talked about this um they kind of like throw a lot of people under the bus uh everybody's scared sag has no power to protect people from this because it is like a a higher thing happening a legal thing happening Mm -hmm. um In 1953, they approved a bylaw that required new members to swear that they were not party members and pledge that they would not join the Communist Party, which a lot of people now look back on as like caving to the pressure of McCarthyism and all that kind of stuff. Um, If they refused to testify, they were blacklisted. If they refused to name names, they were graylisted. There were bans, there were secrets, all that kind of stuff. And it just affected so many actors that were hunted dry, that were kind of abandoned by the protection of anything during this time. And of course, a union is made of people and it's only able to do what the people are able to do. And so it's a sad time for Zach. <laughs> um, according to David F. Prindle, um, in his book, The Politics of Glamour, he said, quote, perhaps 100 SAG members discovered at one time or another that they could not get work for political reasons. Some of those talked to a clearance officer and were reestablished. Some waited out the 1950s on Broadway or elsewhere and eventually returned to the screen. Some dropped into obscurity and a few died of stress or committed suicide. So uh, in 1997, um, there was a uh, 50 years SAG remembers the blacklist. Uh, That was like a a thing that a letter from the president's desk that went around just kind of 
looking back on SAG's response during this time Mm -hmm. um, and talking about the people that it let down, all that kind of stuff. This is an excerpt from a letter from president at the time, Richard Mazur, um, which said, quote, only our sister union, Actors' Equity Association, had the courage to stand behind its members and help them continue their creative lives in the theater. Unfortunately, there are no credits to restore nor any other belated recognition that we can offer our members who are blacklisted. They could not work under assumed names or employ surrogates to front for them. An actor's work and his or her identity are inseparable. Screen Actors Guild's participation in tonight's event must stand as our testament to all those who suffered that in the future we will strongly support our members and work with them to assure their rights as defined and guaranteed by the Bill of Rights. Yeah, it's such a weird, tricky time. And we talked about it a lot uh, during the years that we talked about this in on the podcast. Um, but it's just like so hard to remember that the film industry was so new. Yeah. And it was being threatened to be shut down by the government. Right. And like what that would mean if like the whole film industry just like disappeared yeah. all of a sudden. I don't know. It's just such a weird thing. And yeah. of course, like it's a little bit easier for theater that had existed for like a thousand Centuries, years yeah. <laughs> before that already. So it's like, yeah, there is so much know. instability in the industry itself and creative people, actors, directors, writers, they have to put forth what they have inside of them. Like mm-hmm. there's just no way to deny that. And so in an industry where you're being told you're allowed to say this, you're not allowed to say that, no one can thrive. Well, and the thing that they're referencing is a lot of the writers could write under different names yes. or give a script to somebody else yes. and that person could take credit for it. Yes, which or like, happened with many people we've right. talked about. And even like crew people are very anonymous sure. when it comes to like the public eye and mm-hmm. the government and stuff during this time, especially when there's no internet. Yeah. But the actors cannot be. They are frontward facing and SAG is the Screen Actors Guild. Those mm-hmm. are the only people they're charged to protect and they couldn't during this time, mm-hmm. um, which is sad. And, you know, I think that they've done a lot to try to recover from that. And how can you blame them? They were like 15 years old, yeah, less, right. you know, like that's hard. It's a very difficult situation. And it's one of the worst situations America has gone through. Like mm-hmm. <laughs> this is a very, very dark time, especially in America's artistic history. So Yes, it's hard to survive a witch hunt like that. But let's move on. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Um, So in 1952, there's another big change that starts happening. TV. Uh Uh, And this is very confusing for the Screen Actors Guild, which has only worked with movies and the the studio model and all this stuff. And Mm now uh, there's this question about residuals, right? Mm -hmm. Which has remained the question for (laughs) the last 90 years of SAG. Um, So in 1952... SAG held a strike that, and it was its first like official strike. So the strike I mentioned previously was kind of like undercut by Mm -hmm. negotiations that ended up happening. They threatened to strike and didn't end up having to like really do anything. So in 1952, they held their first strike uh, to negotiate residuals contracts, uh, which allowed for small payments to go to actors whenever a show they appeared in was in a rerun. Um, So this strike lasted from December 1st, 1952 to February 18th, 1953. And then after this, they declared a second strike against TV producers for increased TV show residuals from August 5th to 15th in 1955, just like two years later. Mm -hmm. Um, So, of course, uh, there is some like questions that come up during this time about AFTRA, which is Mm -hmm. more focused on radio and television and all those kinds of stuff. And I don't really want to go into the negotiating. They tried to merge several times throughout history. Mm. um, But SAG ends up just like mostly representing actors, whereas AFTRA represents uh, like hosts Mm -hmm. and personalities mostly. Yeah. Um, And it's not until 2012, like I mentioned, that they end up merging. Um, the third strike that SAG goes on is called in 1960. Um, the primary issue is that post, uh, post the previous strike, um, residuals for feature films that are sold, licensed, or released to TV, um, were not like fairly compensated. So the previous stuff, the contracts had been about TV shows and reruns. And so now studios are recognizing that one thing they can do to get a lot of money is sell their movies to TV to play. So it's like, yeah, in the fifties in particular, some of the films are selling for like several million dollars. They're making back basically what the film made in theaters. They're making again on TV, on TV. Yeah. And it's just going to the studio for doing nothing. So of course, SAG strikes again to get compensation to the actors. Um, 
this strike, of course, is a little more disruptive than some of the previous one. Um, it's held from March 7th to April 18th. And it halts eight major productions, including Butterfield 8, the Elizabeth Taylor movie, um, mm-hmm. Go Naked in the World, uh, Jack Lemmon's The Wackiest Ship in the Army, and Marilyn Monroe's Let's Make Love. Mm. Um, the theatrical s- strike settlement results in residuals for films commencing after January 31st in 1960. But producers' lump payment of $2.65 million creates the Guild's first pension and welfare plan. Mm-hmm. So they are successful in this. And there's so much money. Yeah, There's so, so much. much money involved in this that they're like, oh, great. Maybe you could retire someday. Mm-hmm. <laughs> uh, I also want to mention, of course, I just got to throw these in. Now I'm kind of just skipping through some of the stuff that happens in the 60s and 70s to get to where we are today. Um, the Screen Actors Guild Ethnic Minorities Committee was co-founded in 1972. The Screen Actors Guild's Women's Committee was also founded in 1972. So mm-hmm. those become some essential parts of the guild that represent smaller communities um, and speak up for them on behalf of the guild as well. So that within the structure, there is some accountability. Mm-hmm. Um, and of course, throughout time, I don't have the time to get into all of the subcommittees that happen. Oh, wow. <laughs> I know that this in- this is so interesting to everybody. <laughs> committees and subcommittees of labor organizations. Uh, listen, it's amazing. It's crazy. It's amazing what people can do when they come together. And, it's amazing to me that there are so many facets that someone needs to be passionate about. Mm-hmm. <laughs> someone needs to be attentive to them. And so I think it's so remarkable that you have people that step up to the plate and say, no, I will take charge of this and work for the good of the collective as an individual. Well, and there's so many things which a lot of people are not, I mean, a lot of producers and studios are not necessarily trying to make work dangerous no no but when something happens they're like oh we should probably create some rules around that so that it becomes safer or you know oh it was particularly hot this summer (laughs) and we want to just create some guidelines of like you know these are things that studios can provide to actors or people on set for when this scenario happens yeah yeah Well, and a lot of them are just lines that you have to draw so that people who are desperate don't push up against them. Right. Because, I mean, it's a business, ultimately. Mm -hmm. Money is the bottom line, no Mm -hmm. matter what. And money will make people do things that are unethical Mm -hmm. without intentionally, like, trying to be a bad person. Right. Um, Well, and a lot of times the people who make those decisions are like, oh, how can we save money? Oh, well, do blankety blankety blank. And it's like, they're not saying to do those things in relation to human lives they're just like well that will save us money right and then when they do that it harms people yeah yeah so it's like so you need an outside arbitrator to stand between and say sorry you can't do that come up with a different solution yeah (laughs) Uh, yes um the fourth strike that happens is in 1978 um when both sag and after come together for a commercial strike against advertising agencies and national advertisers for better residuals on TV ads. Thank goodness for this as well, because that's how most actors make their money. Hmm. Um, so this lasts from December 19th, 1978 to February 7th, 1979. Um, it's after a second national strike, SAG's fourth. The fifth strike happens in 1980 uh, when both SAG and AFTRA Uh, have a TV theatrical strike again. Mm -hmm. It begins July 21st for SAG and June 22nd for AFTRA. Uh, This is over contract terms, including profit participation for performers in pay TV, video disc, and video cassettes. Yes, because now there are new forms of media. (laughs) Yeah, and as... HBO (sighs) has come to existence, VHS tapes, people can actually own the media. Mm -hmm. And as the media changes... The contracts need to change. You can hear how slowly I am saying this because this is just the eternal struggle. Well, because like they did when they started selling the films to television channels, the producers are like, oh, we can make equally as much money as we already made and not have to repay anyone. (laughs) It's like, hello? Hello. (laughs) We made that product. (laughs) So that leads us up to where we are now. 
uh, in, in terms of our uh, podcast. <laughs> yes, in the mid 83. to early 80s. 1983. So I'm not going to keep going on with strikes and whatnot. But um, this is kind of what leads us up. The There's a 50th anniversary celebration with a TV special, a golden gala ball, oh, uh, wow. a moving picture ball in New York. Hmm. Um, you know, lots of celebration. I mean, 50 years of having a union is yeah. pretty remarkable. Um, and of course, a lot of labor unions were started in the early 1900s in mm-hmm. America. But... Um, yeah, it's pretty awesome. And, uh, a SAG is a massive union now. And, oh, you know, when we get to the year 2023, we'll talk about the current strike mm-hmm. and all of that. But for now, I don't need to get into that. But, uh, I just, I am always impressed with how things line up and, uh, the importance of these things in terms of the industry and film history and how they are so affected. I mean, I talked about this a little bit last Academy Archives when I was talking about Catherine Hepburn and how as she broke away from the studio model and Mm -hmm. began to freelance and like SAG had to reorient towards that when that started being the thing and how were they going to, you know, protect and uh, have jurisdiction over actors' livelihood uh, against producers. Uh, Mm -hmm. You know, all these things. I just think it's amazing. And I, I love that it is a union made of other actors and people in the mm-hmm. industry which is what it should be but i yeah. just love to talk about it and learn about it yes indeed so, hope that didn't bore you too much <laughs> <laughs> uh, but with that we come to our final segment of the show in which we thank the academy for things relating to the films we discuss the people we talk about other things from these years that we are learning about um i will thank the academy for Shooting in chronological order. Oh, yeah. How lucky. I know. <laughs> that sounds so nice. <laughs> yeah. I mean, it, it's something that, I don't know, a lot of people don't know always. And films, every film is totally different. And sure. every film is set up for the needs of the film. A lot of it is financial because mm-hmm. if you have scenes that are all shot at this particular restaurant throughout the whole film, it makes sense to go to that restaurant, for, shoot all of yeah. the scenes <laughs> over like the course of two weeks. And then you don't have to return there ever again, but you've shot all of the scenes throughout the whole movie there. Yes. Um, when you have something like this, where it's just, you know, there's scenes in the woods and the scenes in the woods only happen during this one point in this movie in <laughs> E.T. Uh, so they can just go there in chronological order and shoot there. And it <laughs> all works out great. You know, it was able to be segmented in a way for the children, but also in the way that the story was told that like, this was possible. Yeah. And it makes for a better product in this scenario. Totally. So. Totally. One of the things that uh, a lot of actors do is, you know, you hire a coach mm-hmm. for your role, um, someone that you can work with outside of the film. And like one of the main things that you do is work through your chronological stuff yes. because you're not going to be able to do that on set. And it's so frustrating. It's like the worst thing ever because you do all this work, you know, your trajectory, but you have to like, have like mental guideposts mm-hmm. so that when you go to the scene that's just the big scene, you have no lead up to it and no letdown from it. So you have to be able to just like insert yourself. Well, and one thing that's so even hard. crazier in today's, especially with streaming companies who want to save a lot of money, uh, force people to shoot whole seasons of television mm-hmm. out of order. Yeah. Where like, for instance, uh, the show Beef on Netflix mm. is a particular one where they did this where there were certain days of filming where they filmed like a scene in episode three and then that afternoon had to shoot a scene in episode five (gasps) and then had to go and shoot a scene in episode one oh my gosh and the whole point of that show is an escalation right Uh, luckily they were able to shoot the final episode after they shot everything that's good which is good uh but it's crazy hard to do stuff like that yes and so kudos to those actors who yeah. do that and creatives but yes thank you for chronological <laughs> filming thanks it's nice when it happens <laughs> uh, um i would like to thank the academy for uh the innovation of the original six sag yeah. members sag founders that said you know what this isn't good enough and we could do something else and whatever we do we have to find a way to make it legitimate because mm-hmm. i think that there's something very wise about not just being like this sucks we're gonna do our own thing but being like 
how do we make this real? Mm -hmm. Like, what is the reality? We need to have star power included. We need to have bargaining power. We need to work with FDR. Like, we need to do these things to prove our legitimacy. And, like, that I think is remarkable because it's one thing to have an idea. It's one thing to want something better. It's another thing to be realistic and execute. So I just am happy about that and thank the Academy for that. Mm -hmm. I would like to thank the Academy for a friendly alien. (laughs) It reminds me so much, and I'm sure this is hugely influential to to, uh, the Mandalorian, but it reminded me of Baby Yoda, too. Of course. And a lot of that they took from this sort of filmmaking process of like it is real the yes. puppet is real yeah we treat the puppet as real mm-hmm. we interact with the puppet yeah like it's you an give actor. notes to the puppet yes you don't give notes to all the puppeteers <laughs> right yeah well and that's a jim henson thing too right where it's like you give notes to the puppets mm-hmm. and then everybody else figures it out from there right in kind of secrecy <laughs> to maintain the illusion and it's just so fun i mean I hope Steven Spielberg was okay when he was in Tunisia (laughs) and thinking about his old alien friend that he used to have, who maybe he felt abandoned him at some point also. Um, He definitely left that part out of the Fablemans. (laughs) Yeah. But I don't know. It's fun. It makes for a fun, interesting story. It's like a new type of story to have to have yeah. this like weird because every like a lot of the sci-fi stuff is scary besides Star Wars sure. up to this point. And so and even Star Wars like during this time in the 70s and 80s nothing is really like cute alien in no. that version of Star Wars it's no. all like weird or scary or like cool. Yeah. And so this is like your classic fun cute alien <laughs> who's your friend. <laughs> And I would like to thank the Academy for the liberal guild members that were brave enough to stand up for fellow guild members, mm-hmm. specifically my main man, Gene Kelly. Oh, yes. I'm proud of him. I love that guy. And I've done a full episode about him that you can listen to and you can hear me gush about him forever. But, you know, and Lauren Bacall and uh, these people who just like decided that their face, their outward facing presence, which is what is an actor right you are Mm -hmm. what people see on the screen they knew that that was powerful Mm -hmm. and they knew that by showing their face and not caving that that meant something humphrey bogart as well and danny Kay. um just like that i mean that moves me to my core like Mm -hmm. i think that's such a form of bravery to stand up to a power like that so yeah especially when your union doesn't yeah (sighs) But th- now it's not a time for us to gripe about the union because we need to have a solid front. So <laughs> we all make mistakes. And with that, uh, we leave you. Yes. Thanks for listening. Thanks for tuning in. Yes. Thanks for joining us. And then uh, join us again for our next episode in which we discuss the 56th Academy Awards and the 56th Best Picture winner, Terms of Endearment. Thank you for tuning in to Thank the Academy. You can follow us on social media at Thank the Academy Podcast on Instagram and at Thank Academy Pod on Twitter. If you enjoy listening to the show, make sure to leave a five-star rating on Apple Podcasts and subscribe on your favorite streaming platform. The theme song was created by the one and only Noah Heisinga. Join us next week on Thank the Academy.